We turn to read from the scriptures this evening from the gospel according to John and the 21st chapter. The gospel according to John and the 21st chapter. And we shall read from the first verse. Let us hear the word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth, and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but, as it were, two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty and three. And for all there was so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread, and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee? He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, 
Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren, that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? This is the disciple which testifieth of these things, and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to that reading from his word this evening. We shall take our text this evening from the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to John and the 7th verse. The 7th verse of the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to John. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. Particularly those words which we read there. Those words of the Apostle John, as we suppose, that disciple whom Jesus loved, which he says to the Apostle Peter, It is the Lord. This is a time after the tremendous events which took place at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Son of God who had come down into the world, who was made into the form of a man, to be fully the Son of Man as fully the Son of God. Jesus Christ, who had come to live upon this earth for those years, which were spent in perfect obedience to his Father, in perfect living in this world. And yet, when his time was come, this one who had been so perfect, this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, must be cruelly taken of men, and he must be crucified for sin, not his own, crucified, as it were, under false pretenses, crucified under all sorts of arguments against him, 
which were false, which had nothing of truth about them. They claimed that he had blasphemed, for he said that he was the Son of God, and yet he was nothing less. Though he was walking as a man upon the earth, this Jesus Christ, he was crucified. And there upon that cross he bore the sins, not of his own, not at all, none of his own, but he bore there the sins of his people. And he suffered the Father's back being turned upon him on those hours upon the cross when he had no comfort from on high, and yet he endured hell for the sake of his people. And yet until this time he has had with him a band of men. He has called them out specially to himself, his disciples who followed him, those people whom he specially taught, who heard his words and his teachings from his hand, who observed him as he went about his life, who followed him in a physical sense to every place that he went. These disciples, what have them when it came for the crucifixion? What happened to these? Well, they were all scattered. In the garden of Gethsemane, one of their number, Judas Iscariot, the traitor, he led the, the soldiers and the chief priests, he led them to the garden of Gethsemane, bringing with him a band of men and officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees. They came with torches and weapons to arrest Jesus in the garden. And there, my friends, his disciples fled him. They fled away from him because they were not content, and they could not drink from this cup. And yet worse than this, you recall that the Apostle Peter had said he would never forsake the Lord. And the others, as we read, we often blame Peter for all these things, and often he was the first to speak. And yet all the apostles said likewise at this time, at that point when he had made this declaration, Though all else forsake thee, yet will not I. And so said they all likewise. And yet now when this party has come to arrest him, they flee away. And yet we read that John goes into the room of judgment. He is known, as we suppose, to the high priest. And Peter also obtains admittance by him. And yet this Peter, when he is there, he is questioned. He has brought their attention. Perhaps this man, he might, may well so have been one of his disciples. And so he is asked straight up, are you one of his followers, one of his disciples? Are you one of those who has sat under his ministry and gone about with him? And my friends, Peter falls here into such a grievous and terrible sin. For here he falls to a point that he denies his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Even in a most terrible way. With oaths and cursing, he denies the Lord Jesus Christ. This man who had stood so boldly there and said that he would never forsake him, now denies him with oaths and cursing. So Christ is crucified, and his disciples are so cast down. We had hoped that it would have been he that would have delivered Israel. There were some who were hoping that Christ Jesus the Messiah who was promised of old when he came would be one who would lead the nation, who would 
lead the nation in an uprising against the rule of Rome. And would be a political man, a political leader for the nation of Israel to deliver them from their tyranny and from the bondage of the Romans. Christ Jesus crucified then. We read in the New Testament, for later in the epistles, a stumbling block to the Jews. To the Greeks it was foolishness because they expected something very different. They did not expect Christ and him crucified to be the principal matter. As it were, the key and the greatest event of history as it were. They were hoping for something else other than that. And now, Christ has been crucified. He has died on the cross. They have seen him, his body being buried in that tomb. What of all that now? What what has become of all their hopes? What has become of what they thought this Messiah would do for them? He's all been shattered. It has turned into nothing of the sort. This mission has become abysmal failure. And yet, of course, we see how that it was nothing of the sort. But rather, it was a great victory. For in Christ's moment of his greatest weakness, that was, as it were, the moment of his greatest triumph, when he conquered over sin and Satan, death and the grave. And having put all those down, redeemed his people to himself. But then the glorious news began to break. And it comes as we see it in stages. The first day of the week, there were the women that came to the tomb. And they found it was empty. Therein, Jesus Christ was vindicated. There it was shown that he was truly the Son of God. For God raised him up from the dead. He granted that once more he should rise up from that tomb. That he should not remain there. But that he should yet be shown by his resurrection to all men. That he was truly the Son of God. And not merely a counterfeit Messiah. And then he appears at various occasions to various people. And is one of these which we read of here. One of these appearances of Jesus Christ that we see here in the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to John. We see here quite, it appears, unremarkable. Simon Peter, surely a grieving man, a miserable man. There has been something of Christ's tender mercy that has been seen already. It was told to to Mary that she ought to go and tell his disciples, as it is in one gospel, his disciples and Peter, that he was coming. And yet what word was that for Peter? Was it a word of comfort or a word of fear? Yet now Christ has not spoken to him directly. He is still somewhat in the dark, as we suppose, because he knows not what will become of him. Is there any hope for this man? Has Christ truly risen from the dead? And whilst he is in this state, he longs to go back to his old career, his old pursuits, his old way of life. And we spoke of this somewhat this morning, 
How that when we are cold-hearted, when we are struggling within with battles and fears, we are so often tempted to turn back to the old way of life. And so we see Peter doing here in an illustration. Peter says to them, I go a-fishing. And his fellows, Thomas and Nathaniel, sons of Zebedee and two other disciples, agree and consent to go with him. And they enter into a ship and by the providence of God they catch nothing. Seems a strange providence, perhaps. They may have wondered at it. Skilled fishermen, nonetheless. It was not as though they were newcomers to this trade, and yet they could catch nothing. Yes, but it was because God had directed the fish away from their nets. He had kept them from their snares that they laid for them, no matter how skillfully they were laid. Yet there was no way that a fish could enter into their nets that day. The Lord would have them to see his hand at work. Christ would reveal himself to them. And so it would be. We see here certain principal matters in this portion and centering centering on the text and those wonderful words which are spoken to Peter. We shall consider first of all the disciples' condition, particularly Peter's condition here. How that he is perplexed in his mind, and yet also prone and bent, as it were, towards worldly things. His mind is not on Christ at this time. He is not thinking about that kind of a matter. It is not his first thought. But rather, he has a spare moment. What does he do? I go a-fishing. My friends, this is the natural state of man. It is a state to which a Christian may lapse into if he does not keep his heart, if he does not keep close to the Lord, he may fall into such a state as this. And yet this is primarily a feature of the unregenerate man, one who is without Christ. The Christian has his heart set upon things higher and more heavenly. He may not always display that, but it will always be in his heart that it is so. Always in his heart it will be plain who is the first. And who is the foremost therein? It will be plain who reigns in his heart, whether it is self or whether it is under the law of grace. But in Peter, we see a symptom of unregenerate man. He has a spare moment, and he will go about something which is his way of life, something of the earth, something to meet the temporal need of man, not something to meet the spiritual need. And so he seeks after these things. My friends, this is the natural state of man. We were conceived in sin, born in iniquity. Therefore there is sin which dwells in us. We are all sinners to the very core. And there is no escaping the matter. The scriptures are condemning it when they speak of this. Because all have sinned. Come short of the glory of God that high and holy standard which is set forth in his law, man can never attain to it of himself, nor can he attain to it perfectly with Christ. He must needs fall short. And as a part of this falling short, there is, of course, the natural sin which is in his body, which is in his person, which he cannot free himself from, but there is also actual transgressions that he commits. 
And these transgressions take on so many forms. And my friends, they may even take on such a form as this. Such an innocent form, apparently. When you might think of committing sin against God. Committing sin in this life. All manner of different people have all manner of different ideas as to what sin really is. It may be that some people will say, well, this is my moral code, but that's yours. You're free to believe yours, and I'm free to believe mine. We each have our own form of the truth, and therefore truth is a subjective thing. It is something which depends on me and my personality and how I want to live. And so they will define sin in that way. I decide what is wrong. And perhaps they will be more offended when somebody wrongs them. Yet when they wrong somebody else in the same way, well, that is not sin. They can find all manner of excuses to let themselves off from doing that kind of a thing. And so they will make sin to be such a subjective thing, which becomes a personal matter. You can't accuse me, they say, of sin. You can't say that I've done what is wrong. But my friends, this is the book which was written by the creator of the world. And a book which is written by the creator of the world demands the attention of all created beings. It demands their careful attention. And most especially when it sets forth all the laws by which man should live. The high and holy standards of God. And my friends, we see here, as we might see with so many apparently innocent sins, how that they break so many of the commandments. Peter just says, I go a-fishing. But his thoughts were clearly elsewhere. I go about an innocent business. My calling is not this. I've been called from this. He was called from the nets. This was from whence he had been called. But now, having been called from thence, having served a while with Christ, and now having fallen away, he returns to that old way. What is wrong with this? We could consider how that it breaks, in a manner of speaking, the first commandment. I shall have no other gods before me. A fundamental matter before you even get on to any of the other commandments. Yet here is one who has not put God first. In this instance especially, we see how that he did not seek first the things of God, the kingdom of God. He did not follow after those things first. And thereby he was led into sin. He was led into error by these matters. And it seems so innocent. Thereby sin may ensnare us with all its innocence. Satan himself, you remember, the scriptures describe him. He can appear as an angel of light. He can appear as a deceiver. And therefore he can appear at times in a way which is so subtle, so secretive, so ensnaring, so captivating that we almost fall for him. And we are tempted to go fishing, as Peter did here. We are tempted to fall away from the matters we ought to be attending to, the matters we ought to be seeking after, 
to follow after the worldly things, the things of this world. My friends, there is nothing wrong with many of the pleasures and amusements of this world in and of themselves. We can't find a text of Scripture which speaks specifically against perhaps a certain sport. And in itself, it may not be a wrong thing. There are certain amusements and pleasures which are evidently sinful. I'm not speaking of these. I'm speaking of the most innocent kind. Of these, they may yet be a sin. If they take first place. If we seek after them before we seek after Jesus Christ. I do not mean this in a casual sense. I have heard some who have said, well, in going about all these things which are sinful, in spending so much time in my amusements and living my life for my pleasures, I'm still bringing glory to God in them. My friends, be not deceived in this respect. This is false religion. This is a pretense of Christianity, an obnoxious pretense of Christianity, that we should be tempted to think that we can glorify God in our enjoyments and in our pleasures, satisfying the flesh. If these things are taking so much of our time that we have not time for God, we have not time to meditate, to read the Scriptures, to pray, as we ought. And my friends, we never do any of these things enough. This is sin. And yet, my friends... We may sin even by being in this very building tonight. You say to me, how so? How can this be? We come to a place of worship. It's a good thing. Well, of course it is a good thing. But my friends, if we come here to worship insincerely, we have not come with a heart to seek God. We have not come in the right frame or the right spirit. We can sin against God by being here. We've attended a place of worship. You've come into this place, which is where we seek to bring glory to God. But you have not come to seek Him. Well, that is a sin itself. So many in this world feel like it is a good thing and a profitable thing for their souls to come to a church, a place of worship. But my friends, for those who do not know Christ... It merely adds to their sins. It piles iniquity upon iniquity to attend a place of worship. It's not a good work for them. It's not a good work at all. But here we see that even by being in a place of worship, a man, he perhaps sits under the hearing of the gospel. He does nothing about it. He does not heed what the scriptures teach and what he hears from the word of God. For there is sin compounded yet further. We cannot escape it. Sin is all about us. We may so easily fall into the snare of it. We must be warned and careful. For it is so easy that we may fall into the snares of the devil. Be tempted away, as Peter was, to go fishing. To be distracted from the things of God to turn away from thoughts of him, to be insincere about our worship. We must seek, as much as lies within us, to be sincere and earnest when we gather together, to come with a heart desiring to seek God and to find him in this place.
that he might draw near to us as we seek to draw near to him. But then we see, secondly, in the fourth verse here, a sad thing indeed. When the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. An unrecognized Savior we see here. Christ Jesus, it brings to our minds in Revelation, standing at the door and knocking at that church which had fallen away so much. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And yet not known, not answered, nothing. Jesus Christ standing upon the shore, and yet the disciples saw him not. My friends, we may see here how that Jesus Christ may come to our souls and we see him not. Such is the work of God in our souls that he works by his Spirit in such a secret way that betimes we may not see him at work. It may be that one who is newly saved may say, I made the decision to follow Christ. That is wholly unscriptural, and plainly so. We never find anywhere such language used in Scripture. It is contrary to all the teachings of the Word of God. And yet so it may seem to a man. It may be that he is not aware of the the Spirit working in his heart to convict him of sin. It may be that he is not realizing how that there is such a work being wrought in him. And so he is brought to a point where, as the apostle says, that he consents unto the law that it is good. So one may be brought to a point where he consents unto the gospel. And yet it is not his doing. It may seem in such a way. Yet it is of the Lord. He does not consent of his own will, of his own volition. He does not have any say in the matter. And yet it has been worked in him such that he is brought to a point that he can say boldly, I will serve Christ, for he hath saved me. He has given faith to lay hold upon the promises of God. But this work may be unperceived. Yet, my friends, it is a sorry sight when Jesus Christ comes to visit his people and they perceive it not. I recall an anecdote which was told once, I heard it second-hand, from someone who had been, who had heard this account of a man who had gone to a meeting which was being held in a field in a time of revival. I forget the exact details of where it was now. But here there was a great meeting being held. A great preacher was standing at the front and he was preaching. And there were vast crowds gathered before him in the fields. And they were gathered together until the fields were full as it were of people as far as you could see. So many people had gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. And the preacher preached a fine and stirring message to the people. But there was one journalist who was present, an unregenerate man, who passing by another gentleman as he left the field after the service, 
he made a comment to this man. Isn't it wonderful to see so many people gathered together? Isn't it wonderful to have such fine preaching? And the man said to him, What a wonderful saviour. The journalist had missed all these things. He had missed, for all the sight of the dazzling crowds, the impressive emotions perhaps on display, perhaps a fine preaching of the preacher. He had been carried away by it all, so much that he had missed Christ. He had missed the very essence of the matter. And so it may be with us. We may know everything, and yet we may not know Christ. We may hear all about the gospel. We may hear so many times over and over again of Christ Jesus and him crucified. Christ who came into the world to save sinners. We may hear time and time again of the doctrines of the scriptures. What the scriptures teach to man. What man's duty is towards God. And yet we may miss the one vital matter. And that is to know Christ. These things are vital. Doctrine is necessary. It is absolutely vital as we know what the scriptures teach. But my friends, we may know all the doctrine in this world. We may be the most intellectual person. Or we may know virtually nothing of doctrine. And yet if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. As is the promise of scripture. It is desired We should desire to know what the scriptures teach. But my friends, it does not matter how clever you are to be saved. But do not let this pass by once more you without recognizing Christ. Let not this occasion be yet another Lord's day when you have failed to see Christ. Let it not be said tonight, as you leave this place, that once more we've heard lots of intellectual things, lots of interesting facts, lots of good and useful information. But God grant that Christ may be seen, that you may not miss Christ, but that you may see him, and not just see him as the Son of Man and the Son of God, but recognize him and know him as Savior of the lost. The one who comes, and as we see in this chapter, he restores the lost. Simon Peter, who has blasphemed him, who has sworn that he does not know him, has denied him in such a terrible way, yet he can be restored. Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road, the persecutor of the people of the Lord, who was bent about destroying and wiping out the Christian religion. When he saw the Lord, then surely he was a changed man, even from his great wickedness, from all that opposition to God and his work. Yet there the Lord worked and brought him back. My friends, there is always hope whilst you are yet alive, that Christ will have mercy. But we see then how that this miracle is worked. They have caught nothing, as we have spoken of briefly before. But now, 
Christ instructs them. No surprise to us. And yet perhaps a surprise, this has happened before. We read of it in the Gospels. The disciples have had this same miracle enacted before them. And in those previous occasions, as now, we might comment how that here were experienced fishermen being told by the carpenter's son, Jesus of Nazareth, how to fish. How extraordinary. How strange. And yet this was the Son of God. We must never forget that though he was a man and he walked upon this earth as a man, yet still he knew all things. He had power with God. And so he was able in these ways to work in such a way that indeed now they should catch the fish at his command and they should draw them in. Well, here is an encouragement for us as the people of God as it was before. We may have cast the net many a time and yet the Lord may have withheld his blessing from us. Many a time the gospel has gone forth, whether it be in the open air or from this pulpit. Many a time we have witnessed of Christ to those around us, and nothing seems to have come of it. It seems as though the word has gone forth on the stony ground, and there has been nothing of it. Well, we keep on casting the net. It may be that sometime the Lord will command a blessing, and we shall find it to be full. But then this disciple, who terms himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, a precious term indeed, a term of great humility on the apostle's part, he set himself not up as being above all the other disciples, but perhaps here is a term showing his own weakness, a term showing how that he was entirely inadequate to receive this love from God. He was entirely unworthy of it. And yet here is, as it were, a miracle which is something greater than that great catch of fishes. That Christ loves his people. Those who call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. They are loved with an everlasting love. Which shall not fade, it will never cease, it will never pass away. But it will continue for all eternity. But this disciple, John, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. There he sees Christ. He realizes it is Christ. Here is the Savior of sinners. The one who is appointed to all the world. Here is that one. Jesus Christ the righteous. Standing before him. And yet still. Tender thought as it may be. Precious as it may be. Wonderful as it is, that when we may say, it is the Lord, when we feel his presence in our soul, when he comes to us in a special way, yet what comes with this is our mixed feeling. There is some joy. There must needs be great joy. And yet also, there is a proper sense of fear, also. It is the Lord. This is the one that you have gone about in rebellion against. This is the one who you've turned against. This is the one whose advances you have spurned. This is the one whom you have ceased to hearken to. This is the one against whom you have sinned grievously in denying him. It is the Lord. 
My friends, not one of us stands innocent before him. We may stand innocent and pure and white before God through Jesus Christ, and yet of ourselves as saved people, yet we stand as condemned men before him. It becomes us then, when we consider these things, to have a due reverence. When we come before God to have a great concern for his holiness and to realize how improper it is for us to come without Christ, to come of our own merit, how improper it is for us to stand before him, how improper it is to approach him without one to stand between us, Jesus Christ, the Lord. It is the Lord, he says. Joy and fear mingled together at that word. And yet it turns out to Peter's great comfort. He has his test later in the chapter. Christ comes to him thrice, the same number of times as he has denied him, and says to him, Lovest thou me? My friends, Christ Jesus, he is here presented in the scriptures. He is presented in the gospel. But do you love him tonight? Have you any concern for your soul tonight? For upon this great and one question hangs all eternity. Upon this question hangs whether God will be favorably disposed towards you or not. It is the Lord. But how do you see that tonight? Is it a word for you of great comfort? Or is it a word of great challenge? Or is it just a word to a hopeless soul? Which means nothing. My friends, salvation may be found in Jesus Christ. His face must be sought. He must be turned to in humility and repentance. Peter feels this a little here. He feels as though he cannot continue as he has. He feels as though in some way he cannot merely be content to remain on the boat. Perhaps it is in life when you are going about that you see somebody that you are a very close friend perhaps and they are walking some distance off. But as soon as you recognize them, you run to meet them. This was what we read of in the scriptures, is it not? The prodigal son returning to his father. His father ran to meet him as soon as he saw him. My friends, so it is with the Christian when he sees his Lord. There is a change which comes upon him. It is a change upon Peter here. He has been going about as this bold fisherman. He has just drawn fish, a great number of fishes. He is perhaps amazed. And now he hears it is the Lord. What does he do? He girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, cast himself into the sea, made his way ashore as fast as he could. My friends, such must we do. Jesus Christ, he is able and he is willing to save. He came to save sinners. My friends, will you not run to him tonight? Will you not run to Jesus Christ tonight? Peter here, 
He must make his way through the water as fast as he can. He cannot wait to have safe passage upon a small boat like his fellow disciples did. But knowing himself to be in such a wretched condition before God, because he has sinned so terribly against him, he has denied his very Lord, so he must run. He knows it is the only hope. He knows that there will be no hope anywhere else. Here, at last, he has been battling this conscience. He has been battling against the troubles of his soul all this time. He has sought to distract himself by going back to fishing again. But he sees Christ, and there is the answer, and there he must go as fast as he can to Jesus Christ, to apply to him. My friends, so it must be with us tonight. We find ourselves to be not right before God. We must flee to him. There is salvation in none other name under heaven. We cannot be saved. We cannot be freed from conscience. We cannot have freedom in that sense in this life until we apply to Jesus Christ. My friends, we must come to him in prayer. We must plead with him that he would have mercy upon our souls. And my friends, the very worst of sins, the vilest of crimes committed against him, yet may be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. My friends, it is the Lord. You know him not, or seek his face. If you do know him tonight, then my friends, how ought you to live seeing this? The Lord stands before you in all his beauty and his holiness. We thank God that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is our righteousness. And yet, if we love him, more than these things, these other things of this world, then surely we will long to live according to his word. We will long to live in a way that is pleasing in his sight, a way that is of delight to him in a respect. My friends, let us seek after holiness. Seek after a pure way of living. Seek after the word of God. Seek to discover therein what his will is for us. What he would have us to do in our lives. How he would have us to go about our lives. What is right and what is wrong. This is the standard of living. And so we ought to seek to live by it. It is the Lord. Well, my friends, seek his face tonight. There shall surely be found joy and comfort. Do not delay. Do not put it off for another day. Surely conscience will continue to nag at your mind, since constantly brought back to remembrance, unless you will seek his face and seek grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Well, may the Lord bless these things to our souls tonight. And grant that we may truly see Jesus. We may see that it is the Lord, Jesus Christ, presented to us in the gospel, in the scriptures. Christ, the center of our lives. Christ, the center of all that we do. As the apostles' resolution was, determined nothing to know, to know no thing amongst the Corinthians, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. May he be glorified by these things tonight and grant to us a blessing. For Christ's sake. Amen.